Well, did you hear about Mabel? Her husband, Albert, had just died. She'd gone to the funeral home to pay her respects, but when she lifted the lid on the coffin, she burst out in tears. The funeral director asked her what was wrong. Mabel, what's wrong? She said, Albert always wanted to be buried in a blue suit, and you've got him dressed in a black suit. He said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. He said, I, I, let, let me see what I can do. Well, on the day of the funeral, again, Mabel went in to take one last look at old Albert. This time, the casket was open. When the casket was open, there he was lying there wearing this sharp royal blue suit. She was so thankful. Mabel asked the mortician, she said, wow, where did you find such a handsome blue suit? The funeral director explained. He said, well, yesterday... We got a corpse in about your husband's same size who was dressed in a blue suit, but his wife was upset because she wanted her husband buried in a black suit. After that, it was just a matter of swapping the heads. Oh my, I can't believe he told that joke. Well, in our text today, Jesus also addresses a corpse that might as well have been wearing a blue suit. He speaks to a church that was all dressed up, looking good, but it was dead. Spiritual rigor mortis had set in. Jesus speaks to the lifeless church in Sardis. Hey, the worship in this church, it was a little stiff. So far, we've been studying... Jesus' letters to the seven churches. We've studied four of these letters. Loveless in Ephesus, then suffering in Smyrna, then the wrong dose in Pergamos, and then last week, you remember, dire in Thyatira. Well, this morning's lesson we've entitled Rigor Mortis in Sardis. Hey, we're going to examine a spiffy-looking church, all decked out in name and reputation but void of spiritual life. Chapter 3 introduces us to the corpse church. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die for I have not found your works perfect before God. Sardis, like all of the seven of the churches of Asia, was in what is today Western Turkey. On the internet the other day, I saw a series of Bible studies on Revelation 2 and 3 entitled, Talk in Turkey. I suppose that would be a good title for these letters. Sardis was a town about 30 miles south of Thyatira in the Hermus River Valley. It was founded around the year 1200 B.C. and was one of the great cities of the ancient world. Gold and silver coins were first minted in Sardis. You could call it the birthplace of modern money. Aesop, the famous fable maker, was probably from Sardis, just one of its many claims to fame. One author refers to Sardis as the city of past glories. Sardis was built on top of a tall ridge, 1,500 feet above the valley floor. This made it impregnable to an invading army. In fact, the phrase, to capture the hill of Sardis, became proverbial for doing the impossible. 
It would be like saying, sure, the Atlanta Hawks are going to win the NBA championship this year, and I'm going to capture the heel of Sardis. But the Sardis heel was captured in 549 BC by King Cyrus of the Persians. His army was camped around the city, and one of the Persians noticed a soldier from Sardis drop his helmet. It rolled down the side of the mountain. The Persian observed this soldier climbing down a secret snake path to retrieve what he'd lost. That night, the Persian and a small battalion followed the snake path up the ridge. When they reached the city gates, they found them unguarded. The lookouts had neglected their posts. The city of Sardis was, con- was conquered because she fell asleep at the wheel. And the same had happened to the Christians there. This is why Jesus shouts to this church, be watchful. Over the long history of Sardis, the city continually declined. In 17 AD, a devastating earthquake shook the city. Sardis never fully recovered from the disaster. And the history of the church paralleled the city's demise. The church of Sardis got lulled into a spiritual lethargy. At one time, this church was vibrant and growing, but a cancerous apathy had caused a spiritual stupor. Rather than press forward, the believers in Sardis rested on their past successes. They pointed to their reputation instead of gaining new ground. You know, with each of these four previous churches we've studied, we've mentioned that the seven letters are not just to actual churches in Asia, but the seven churches Jesus chose also represent eras of church history. Ephesus, remember, was the early church of the apostles. Smyrna was the persecuted church of the second and third centuries AD under the tyranny of Rome. Pergamos was the worldly church. This was the church under Constantine's influence that intermingled pagan practices with Christian belief. It compromised. And Thyatira was the medieval papal church that tolerated outright idolatry and immorality. They turned Mary and the Mass and the office of the Pope into idols. You know, some folks refer to the term Thyatira to mean continual sacrifice. This is what the Roman church did to communion. They said the bread and the wine were the literal body and blood of Christ. Thus, rather than offered once for all on the cross, as the Bible says, they sacrificed Jesus afresh every week in the Mass. It's no accident then that Sardis means escaping ones. And these were the the faithful ones who escaped. They escaped the heresies of the church in Rome. This church consisted of true believers who were committed to biblical truth and who bravely rejected the Roman Catholic heresies. You see, Rome taught that grace was not enough, that good works were also necessary to be right with God, that Christ was not enough, but you also needed the intercession of a priest, that faith was not enough, but participation in the sacraments also had to be observed to gain God's favor, that Scripture was not enough, but church tradition was also authoritative, And glory to God was not enough, but the church, and namely the Pope, should also share in Christ's glory. It was courageous men like Peter Waldo and John Wycliffe, Jan Hus and Ulrich Zwingli and John Knox that rejected these doctrines. At great cost to themselves, they resisted. Never forget the word Protestant means protestant. 
We're still protesting the aberrations of Rome. The reformers stood on five solas. Sola gratia, sola Christus, sola fide, sola scriptura, sola Deo gloria. Or translated, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, scripture alone, and glory to God alone. This was the hallmark, this was the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. And leading the charge against the corruption of Rome was a German monk by the name of Martin Luther. On October 31st, 1517, Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, and he set off a firestorm. Luther began his reforms by protesting the selling of indulgences, the practice of purchasing forgiveness for you or your loved ones with a few measly coins. The light came on for Luther on a visit to Rome. He was at the Sancta Scala, or the Holy Steps. Luther was climbing those steps on his knees, performing a hardship or a penance in hopes of working off sin and delivering a relative from purgatory. A verse came to his mind as he climbed those steps. Habakkuk 2, verse 4, The just shall live by his faith. Luther realized the vanity of trying to earn God's favor through your own effort. On the cross, Jesus did all that needed to be done. All that's left for us is to rest our faith on Jesus. The just shall live by faith. You know, this past summer, I visited Rome. And I actually went to the steps that Luther climbed. And sadly, nothing has changed. There's a sign there authored by the Catholic Church giving instructions for the earning of indulgences or forgiveness. I, for one, protest this blasphemy. Our relationship with God is based on grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone and Scripture alone to the glory of God alone. Sardis escaped the false doctrine and the ecclesiastical corruption of the church at Thyatira. But here's what happened. Over the succeeding centuries, the great churches born out of the Protestant Reformation drifted into a spiritual slumber. They lost the fire of their founders. Their love for God died out. Not all, but many of today's mainline Protestant churches have lost their zeal and are in a decline. There are Lutherans today who no longer radiate the passion of Martin Luther. Where is the fierce loyalty to Scripture and his insistence on God's grace? What happened to Wycliffe and Tyndall's followers in the church in England? Or its American hybrid, the Episcopalians? Or even John Wesley's Methodists? Historically, the church of Sardis had a reputation for reform and orthodoxy and a passionate love for Jesus, but they fell asleep spiritually. Certainly, the Protestant Reformation rescued key Christian doctrines. And it emphasized the importance of those five solas. But it didn't push reforms enough. As Jesus said, I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. Many of the early reformers just carried over their Roman eschatology. Now, in fairness, if you had been... If you were being excommunicated by inquisitors for doctrines like justification by faith and, and for translating the Bible into the common language, I mean, sorting out your view on the end times or church polity would have taken a back seat. But sadly, the church at Sardis, they relished their stellar past 
rather than a continued passion for Jesus. They didn't keep moving forward. They had a name, but not a game. They rested on their past. Imagine a football team with cool uniforms. They look great in the warm-ups, but then they leave just before kickoff. They never play it out. It reminds me of the new pastor. He'd been in town several months, but it didn't take him long to assess the state of the church. It was DOA, man, dead on arrival. The people were lazy and uninvolved. Attendance was sporadic. The church leadership was resistant to change. Every new idea got shot down. Worship was half-hearted and evangelism was non-existent. One Saturday, he put an ad in a local newspaper. He put it in a sports section so his members would notice. It read, Funeral for Community Church. We're burying a dead church. Come join us and pay your last respects. Well, of course, the next Sunday, the place was packed. And everyone had bristled up. They all wanted to know what this new guy was doing to their church. That Sunday, a casket sat in the altar. The pastor walked out on stage. He gave a short eulogy. Here lies our beloved church. She died a horrific death. He then invited the mourners to all file by in front of the casket and pay their last respects. But as they walked by, they were surprised. For the new pastor had placed a mirror in the bottom of the casket and he had cocked it at just the right angle where it would reflect each person's face right back at them. You see, a dead church is made up of dead church members. This is how I want us to approach the church at Sardis. Not as some ancient church. Not even as a historical period of church life. But as an autopsy of our own life and our own church. Today we celebrate Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain's 32nd year of ministry. And God has done an amazing work in and through this church. Among Calvary chapels, we have quite a reputation. Yet you can have a name and be spiritually dead. Let's bring this challenge even closer to home. What about your life personally? You have a reputation. You've walked with the Lord for years. But how, how is the current state of your heart? How is your current passion for Jesus? Are you living off yesterday's faith and zeal? Or are you ablaze today? Are you hungry for a fresh understanding of God's word? Or have you stocked the Bible knowledge refrigerator with lots of truth that you can quote, but that you don't live? We need more than just wisdom. God wants us to have passion. According to astronomers, the North Star or Polaris is 433 light years from our planet. That means it takes 433 years for the starlight to reach planet Earth. Thus, what we say to see today in the sky may or may not be the actual star. The star itself could have flamed out 430 years ago. And what we're viewing is merely the light from its past. This is often the case with Christians and with churches. It was true of Sardis. The reputation of what once was continued to shine even though the church itself was dead. I have a friend who's a medical examiner with the GBI. She does autopsies and she testifies in court as to the cause of death. But what if an autopsy was done on a dead church? What would the investigation reveal? Dead churches are more concerned with style than with substance. 
with looking good rather than being good, with adding numbers instead of saving souls. Dead churches are more into ritual than worship. They value formality over spirituality. They're into curing social ills rather than changing people's hearts. Dead churches care about creeds and theological systems more so than the simple word of God. They emphasize material stuff over spiritual priorities. They care more about what men think than what God has said. And here's the biggie. Dead churches rely on their own human ingenuity over the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 1, Jesus comes to the church at Sardis as he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, which we know to be seven angels. As we mentioned back in chapter 1, the phrase seven spirits refers to the multi-layered ministry of the one Holy Spirit. And it's this supernatural work of God's Spirit. His witness of Jesus and His wisdom and His understanding and His counsel in the might that He imparts and the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is what keeps us alive to the workings of God. It's the Holy Spirit who lifts us up as on the wings of the dove. I heard of a firm that had held a stock holders meeting and at the closing banquet the CEO he planned to give this stirring speech he wanted to finish with the challenge if we all stick together this company can fly well at that exact moment 30 trained doves were to be released from a cage in the ceiling they were supposed to fly in formation around the room three times and then return to the cage at the dress rehearsal everything went flawless but on the big night, the banquet ran a little long. And the heat from the stage lights took its toll on the doves caged in the ceiling. So when the CEO shouted, if we all stick together, this company will fly. 30 dead doves fell on top of stockholders and in their dinner plates. The only thing that flew that night were frightened stockholders racing out of the dining hall in a panic. And this is what happens in a dead church. Folks keep the Holy Spirit at bay, caged in their own bias. In a living church, the Holy Spirit is free to fly and swoop. He's on the move. He soars and lifts our eyes. We have a living hope. We're not ducking in fear. Jesus' sharpest indictment against Sardis are his words in verse 2. He has the seven spirits of God. The work of Jesus in the world today is done by His Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that reveals the Son of God. The Spirit convicts and empowers and teaches and calls and gifts His people. And yet in a dead church, they've substituted skill or ingenuity or technology or personality for the touch of the Holy Spirit. Sardis was running on the fumes from the past victories rather than the present power of the Holy Spirit. Understand, a dangerous progression. It happens. The work of God's Spirit begins in the heart of a single man. It catches on with other men and becomes a movement. But often the outward forms are mimicked without the inner power, and it morphs into a machine. Finally, it devolves into a memorial to what was once an authentic work of God. Notice the digression from a man 
to a movement, to a machine, to a memorial. And this is what had happened to the church in Sardis. Once a church building caught fire and a crowd gathered around to watch it burn, the pastor noticed a man in the crowd that he'd been inviting to the church for years, but to no avail. The pastor approached the guy. He said, man, I've tried over and over to get you to come to church, and tonight you decide to show up? The guy replied, well, the church was never on fire until now. It's sad when a church loses its blaze for Jesus, when its fire dies out, when it becomes waterlogged. You see, Sardis was a group of people living life their own way, and yet they gathered together on Sundays at church to just play the game, to just play church. They pretended to worship God and care about the things of God, all the while knowing as soon as they left the building, they were just going to go back to a life of their own designs. Church was their way of keeping God off their back. They'd toss him a bone once a week to alleviate their guilty conscience. You see, these are the habits of a dead church. And here's what Jesus says to such a church. He says, be watchful. Or as another translation puts it, wake up. He says, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Now here's a ray of hope. Even a dead church like Sardis, even in that kind of church, resuscitation is still a possibility. Jesus is concerned about strengthening what remains. You know, I read verse 2 like we're in the ER. The church gets wheeled in on a stretcher. And Jesus, the emergency room doctor, comes bursting into the room. He grabs the electric paddles and he puts them to the chest of the church and he goes, bam! He sends an electric jolt into us. He shocks the church back to life. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. In other words, Jesus isn't about to watch this church die. He's not about to just sit on the sidelines without doing all he can to save it. I like how the message renders verse 2. It says, up on your feet. Take a deep breath. Maybe there's life in you yet. Realize the church has many enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil, even our own ensnaring sins. But in addition, every church faces a hidden killer. It's called entropy. You see, entropy is a term used in physics. It's the propensity for things to drift toward randomness and toward chaos. We live in a fallen world. The universe is winding down. It's wearing out. And left to itself, every system tends to deteriorate. Fires burn out unless they're stoked with new fuel. Bodies run out unless they're fed with food and and with water. Churches die out unless they're being fed with the Word of God and empowered by the Spirit of God. On its own, the human spirit gravitates towards apathy and complacency and mediocrity. We wear down. We settle for the path of least resistance unless we're spurred on from the outside. We're stirred up from the outside. This is why Jesus says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. A church will die if nothing is done to stir it up. Proverbs 27 verse 23 speaks to the danger of entropy. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. 
For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. In other words, nothing is automatic. You can't just put things together and wind things up and then let them roll. You can't do it that way. Take your eyes off your flock or your business or your church or your spiritual life and it'll get away from you. It'll unravel and tether. Vigilance is the key. You got to keep minding the fire. You see, none of us ever outgrow the basics. Spiritual maturity is the same for us all. No one ever outgrows the need for prayer and vision and Bible study and witness and fellowship and worship. There are no shortcuts. We all need to do those things that will strengthen what remains. This is why Jesus says to the church at Sardis in verse 3, Remember therefore how you have received and heard Hold fast and repent. The key to reviving spiritual life is recalling what initiated it in the first place. You see, hold fast and repent are never out of fashion. We need to realize that repentance is more than a one-time act of contrition. Repentance is a constant state of mind and heart. It's an attitude. It's the willingness to be changed. It's the willingness to be what God desires me to be, knowing full well that that's an ongoing process. This is an attitude that I continue in, not a one-time state or a one-time act. And hold fast is a faith with grip. It never lets go. This is how a church or a Christian avoids spiritual death. It maintains a hold fast and repent attitude. Again, verse 3, Therefore, if you will not watch... I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. If a dead church refuses to reinstall some spiritual disciplines, they'll be surprised by Jesus. He'll come to them as a thief in the night. This certainly speaks of the rapture. The rapture will surprise many people. But it could also refer to a specific individual appointment with Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus comes to us before, beforehand, before the rapture. He visits churches and Christians in a personal way to revive what might be dying. We need to hold fast and repent. There's more hope. Verse 4. He says, You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. Now recall in Pergamos and Thyatira, there were a few bad apples among the many in the church who had remained faithful to God. But in Sardis, the majority are defiled. There are only a few who had stayed faithful. But notice their reward. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What a magnificent promise to walk with Jesus. This was the call his first disciples received. You remember on the beaches around the Sea of Galilee, he he said to these men, he said, come and follow me. That was the call. Follow me. Walk with me. How appropriate that at the end, the reward for all disciples, watch, strengthen, hold fast, repent. And why? So nothing will interrupt our walk with Jesus. One day we'll walk with him in heaven. Today we walk with him on earth. But just to take this walk is always the prize. Are you walking with Jesus today? Man, I wish everyone would realize you are going nowhere unless you're walking with Jesus. 
Verse 5 closes Jesus' encouragement to these few members in Sardis who refused to join Corpse Church. He makes a threefold promise. He says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Hey, become a member of Augusta National Golf Club, and you'll get an official members-only green jacket. In the world of golf, there is nothing more prestigious than a green jacket. But these white garments Jesus is talking about, they make a green jacket look like a rag. White garments. They're given to those who walk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus and you're clothed with His holiness, with His purity. Like a bride fit for a wedding day. You're allowed to walk in white. These white garments speak of imputed righteousness. Understand the difference between implanted and imputed righteousness. For a believer is granted both. Implanted righteousness is when Jesus writes His law in our heart. When He changes our very nature. He makes loving God and loving one another our basic instinct. This is what happens when you become a Christian. Something changes inside. Your desires change. It's no longer I have to do this or I have to do that. It's now I want to do it and I get to do it. Implanted righteous is when Jesus writes his law on my heart. Whereas imputed righteousness is when he writes in the heavenly ledgers. When he officially credits me with his merit on the books in heaven. When he writes in his righteousness on my behalf. Did you know that you get upgraded? If you live with Jesus, if you walk with Jesus, you get upgraded. Kathy Adams knows that if she walks with Sandy, she gets upgraded. This happens whenever she and I fly together. I've racked up a few frequent flyer miles on Delta, and so whenever I get the bump to first class, who gets it? It's not me. If Kathy's with me, she's the one who gets the upgraded seat, all because she walks with me. The only change that occurs in her is a smile comes over her face. Trust me. <laughs> hey, but she's treated, how she's treated changes dramatically. She gets white garments, or in Delta's case, one of those red blankets. She gets treated royally. And along with those white garments, the overcomer also receives an assurance Jesus says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. This is wonderful. Jesus is not going to put the eraser to the names of those who walk with him. He's not. Implied, though, is that he could if he wanted to. As a matter of fact, Jesus can do whatever he wants. Jesus is the king of the jungle. He writes down names and he blots out names. Did you know that Jesus controls the registry in heaven? He sets the terms for admission. Jesus is heaven's gatekeeper. If you want to get to heaven, you've got to come through Jesus. And the implication here in verse 5 is that Jesus removed from the book of life the names of those in Sardis who had a faith that had died. And this is a scary proposition. Understand what the New Testament teaches. There is nothing that we can do or not do to gain our salvation. Thus, there's nothing we can do or not do to forfeit our salvation. Our salvation is strictly a matter of faith. 
But what if your faith dies? What if you walk away and abandon your faith? Sardis was the dead church with a dead faith. Hey, we need to realize that faith is like a seed. You water it and feed it and it grows. But if you ignore it and starve it, it'll die. This is how it works with faith. This is why the New Testament tells us in numerous places, continue in your faith. Endure to the end. Stand fast in the liberty with which you were set free. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I could go on. Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis that a good start is not enough. That real faith, saving faith, has a kick that gets it down the back stretch and across the finish line. And last but not least, notice those who overcome the lethargy of this dead church. Jesus promises, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is a really big deal. Jesus will call you by name. Recall, this is what triggered Mary's faith and opened her eyes to the risen Christ. When Jesus appeared to her after his resurrection, she thought he was the gardener at first. But then he spoke her name and she knew. She knew who it was. She recognized how he spoke her name. You see, there was something about the way he uttered That word, Mary. It was different than the way the others said Mary. Her father said it sternly, Mary. Her mother said it with suspicion, like, Mary, what'd you do now? Her neighbor said it judgmentally, oh, Mary. The men in her life said, Mary, baby. (laughs) But Jesus, he infused love and dignity and respect, and mercy, and forgiveness, and pardon into this one little word, Mary. And the same is true about the way Jesus speaks your name and my name. There's something ennobling and enabling about the way He speaks our name. He breathes life into us when He speaks our name. John 10 describes Jesus as the Good Shepherd. And there it tells us, the sheep hear His voice, and He calls His own sheep by name. Imagine one day, in front of the heavenly throng, God Himself is on the throne. Angels clamor around and hover above. Elders bow down and cast their crowns before Him. A sea of humanity bows prostrate before the King. When all of a sudden, Jesus grabs you by the shoulder, and He walks you to the head of the pack. And he says to the Almighty, Father, this is Petey. This is my friend Petey. He's mine. I belong to him and he belongs to me. And there the God who said, let there be light, says, welcome, Petey. What a moment that's going to be. Wow. Hey, this is why you need to make sure that you're not just a dead guy in a blue suit. You look good outwardly, but you're dead on the inside. No, you want to be alive in Christ. You want to be walking with Jesus. If so, He'll call your name. Finally, we're told in verse 6, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Three friends were out deer hunting. There was a lawyer, a doctor, and a pastor. All three men, they saw the same giant buck walking through the woods. 
They saw it at exactly the same time. Their shots rang out simultaneously. Immediately, the big buck hit the ground. When they went down and surveyed the dead deer, they couldn't decide whose shot had killed him. That's when a game warden stumbled across the powwow. He took one look at the buck and he said, the pastor shot that deer. The lawyer and the doctor wanted to know how he could be so sure. The game warden answered said, well, that's easy. The bullet went through one ear and ran out the other. (laughs) Well, as we've been studying Jesus' letters to the church, I hope his words haven't been going in one ear and out the other. Hopefully you have an ear to hear. Especially his words to this dead church in Sardis. The last thing you or I want to be a part of is the corpse church. Let me close with a news report from Cheyenne, Wyoming. A twister blew through town, but the only damage it did was to destroy one of the local churches. An article appeared in the next day's newspaper. It read, The cyclone which destroyed Cheyenne Community Church yesterday did no real damage to the town. Obviously, Cheyenne Community Church was having very little impact. It was a dead church. Maybe that's why Sardis wasn't persecuted. It was one of the few churches that didn't get roughed up a bit. And yet, why would the devil waste his time on a church that's already pushing up daisies? A church that wasn't making an appreciable dent in the community anyway. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a part of a dead church. Whatever we do, let's not sit back and rest on our reputation. A rest on the glory of past triumphs. Let's wake up. Let's stir ourselves up. Let's repent and hold fast. Let's love Jesus and love His Word and see what new things He wants to do in and through us in these next 32 years. Hey, let's have some game, not just a name. What do you say? Father, thank you for your word to the church in Sardis and your word to us today. Lord, I pray for those here here this morning under the sound of my voice. I pray that they would have an ear to hear what your spirit wants to say to us today. And while our heads are bowed and while our eyes are closed, there could be some people here today that, that have just sort of been wheeled in on a stretcher. Man, you feel dead inside. Maybe you know you're a Christian. Maybe you don't know that you're a Christian. Maybe you don't even know. Maybe you do, but you know that, that life has taken its toll. That Man, you've been beat up. You've been roughed up. You feel dead inside. You feel cold. You feel alienated from God. Things have happened. You, 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 this morning, you know there's some, some outstanding concerns. There's some business that needs to transact between you and God. There's some sin in your life of which you need to repent You need to recommit your faith in God today, in Jesus Christ today. This morning, if you're one of the walking dead, and you would say, Sandy, I'm afraid I'm a part of the dead church, just based on what's going on in my heart right now, but I want to change that today. I want to repent of my sin. I want to make things right. I want to recommit my life to Jesus today. If that's your prayer, I want you to stand to your feet right now where you are, and I want to pray for you. Is there anybody here that would say, yes, that's me, and I want to take care of that today? Great. Good. Good. I see 
There's some folks that are standing. Are there any more that would like to stand? If you'd like to say, yes, this is me. I'm on the stretcher, man, and I need the paddles, and I need Jesus to come in and work in my life. Anybody that would stand to your feet and say, yes, that's me. Anybody else? Yes, great, great. We'll wait just a few more seconds. Anybody else? This is your opportunity. And you know you need to stand. Because you've been doing some things in secret. It's time to get it out in the open. And it's time to come clean before God and before others. And you know what? You need to take a stand. I don't apologize for calling you to stand up publicly. Anybody else? Great. Great. Anybody else as we wait? Father, I pray for those that are standing this morning. Lord, you know their hearts. You know their sin. You know the things that they've done where they've willingly, Lord, walked away from you and your plan for their life. Lord, together we, we ask today, and I, and I ask on their behalf, along with them as they pray, we ask, Lord, that you forgive them. Lord, they admit their sin this morning. They ask for your forgiveness, Lord. Please come and cleanse them. Don't blot their name out of the Lamb's book of life. Lord, keep their name right there and clothe them now in white garments. Wash away their sin. Lord, as they repent, as they confess their sin to you now, Lord, may the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that you'll work in their heart now. And Lord, I pray that you would renew their faith and renew the fire that they once had for Jesus. Fan that flame again, Lord. Bring it back to life. Lord, we thank you for those that are standing this morning. And we pray a special prayer for them today. That you'd help them to continue to press forward. To not just rely on yesterday's progress. But they would begin to make progress again in their spiritual life, in their walk with you. Lord, help them to walk with Jesus. And Jesus, you take them. You walk with them today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.